It's fair to say that the diamond cinema space is the most vibrant part of the industry. For us, four or five years ago, we certainly saw the growth of diamond cinemas and the importance of working with diamond cinemas. Creating an engaging experience for audiences really is a key to the continued success of the movie-going experience and the audience and what the panelists have done with their companies. And I'm sure many people joining today have done a wonderful job over the years to create that experience. And it's extremely important. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of the motion picture theatrical exhibition industry since 1920. Here once again with our co-host, Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro. In today's episode, we are going to be bringing highlights from a recent webinar we did, presented by our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks, going over the state of dine-in cinemas, including insights from guests Annalise Holyoke, Senior National Director of Marketing and Loyalty at Cinepolis Luxury Cinemas, Amy Mader of Venue Valet and the Dine-In Cinema Summit, Chance Robertson, the CEO of Flix Brewhouse, and Brian Schultz, the CEO of Look Cinemas. That panel will also be presented with some insights from our sponsors, Jerry Frackfeld, the CEO of Spotlight Cinema Networks. Yeah, regular listeners will know that uh, Spotlight Cinema Networks is the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series, or in this case, a panel discussion, uh, profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury and dine-in circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you to our colleagues at Spotlight for presenting the webinar last week and to the supporting sponsor, Proctor Companies, for their support as well. But before we go into the news segment, there's a lot of movies coming out, finally. I know it's not the huge blockbusters, the box office isn't back yet, but at least I've been watching a lot of things, both at home and in theaters. Did you guys make it out to the movies or did you watch anything at home? Yeah, Daniel, I'm planning to see uh, to go out to the spectacle and, and see some kind of experimental shorts tomorrow or Tuesday. Really want to get out and see Barbarian. I've been told go into that one completely fresh. What are you looking forward to or, or what did you get out to see over the weekend? I actually caught Moon Age Daydream, the David Bowie documentary on IMAX. I saw that Thursday night at the AMC Lincoln Square. Uh, the director was there in person and had a Q&A, a nice surprise for the moviegoers at a commercial screening. I really like the film. I'm not really a Bowie guy or a fan. I didn't really know his music that well. I'd say I'm ambivalent. I like the songs everybody else likes, but I really, really like the movie. I think a very unique documentary, a very unique music documentary. I, I really recommend that during its IMAX run for anyone mm -hmm. that can catch it in theaters. And uh, I also caught the Searchlight title, See How They Run, with uh, Shorsha Ronan. Am I saying that right? Sersha rhymes <laughs> yeah. with inertia. I saw, with inertia. I saw it on yeah. a late night show. <laughs> I, saw that, I saw that same one. Yeah. Sersha, Sersha. Okay, I, it, that's tough. You can't expect Latin people to pronounce that name properly. We're going to butcher <laughs> it. It's like saying Wednesday. It's a, the first time you try to say that in English, it's 
it's an impossible feat. But I'll get there. <laughs> Sorsha Ronan, wonderful actress, really a good movie. I really liked both those movie going experiences. There's also a big studio release coming out in Warner Brothers. Don't worry, darling. Let's start with that, Sean, because this has been a title that has, uh, I think, been in the public consciousness, probably for the wrong reasons. The challenging part to this is how much is the Harry Styles fan base driving a lot of this you know, rumored, dramatic chatter online. And will they show up to see the movie? I mean, one hopes. And will they show up? Because it's, you know, it is it is an adult movie. Granted, Styles has been around for a little while now, so his, his audience has grown up as well a little bit. So I think a lot of them will. I think we're kind of seeing that in some of the pre-sales. The flip side to that is we've had a good idea from at least critics what the reception has been for a few weeks now since it's festival screenings. And it seems to me like this will be fairly front-loaded for the type of movie that it is. So original IP, it's Warner Brothers, you know, who traditionally they are known as the filmmakers studio. I mean, I, I, I really liked Olivia Wilde's previous film. I'm I'm excited. At the end of the day, a movie like Don't Worry Darling, I think lines up as the type of movie, whether I like it or not, I'm going to talk about during dinner. Or yeah. I'm going to talk about over a coffee when I get out of the movies. That's my favorite part of going to a movie theater with someone. Being able to engage with the movie, have a conversation afterwards, like we were saying, maybe fight about it, maybe disagree about it. And that's a type of movie that can lead to that type of conversation. You mentioned, Sean, that you expect this to be front-loaded. What's your range for opening weekend at this point? You know, it's it's very wide at this point, and I think that's it really comes down to the fact that the the tabloid drama combined with Harry have, have driven some higher interest than we would usually see, as you mentioned, for an original IP. At this point, I, I think the most likely target is, is high teens. It could maybe push 20 million with a really strong Thursday turnout, which I think will probably happen. You know, from there, it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I'm curious to see how much, once we get past Friday, we'll have a much better idea of how much that general audience interest is. And, you know, hopefully the positive sides, everybody's talking great things about Florence Pugh's performance. Hopefully that's something that translates beyond all of the other, you know, narratives attached to the movie. What kind of a rollout are we looking at? Or do you expect that we'll be looking at in terms of screen count? Yeah, it's going in over 3000 theaters. So Warner Brothers is giving it their, you know, kind of what I would call their classic push Mm -hmm. for an original movie that would open around this time of year. And that's, to me, a positive sign. I mean, this, this is a studio a year ago who we were talking about hybrid releases, and now we've had a number of them respect a, a new version of a theatrical model. And to see an original movie now do that, not non-IP, you know, whether or not this movie turns out to be a big hit or not, it's a step forward, I think, for these low to mid-tier movies that we keep talking and talking about coming back to theaters. Speaking of low to mid-tier movies, Sean, what do you think the Avatar release is going to do? I mean, there have been a lot of re-releases of old titles recently because... There have been a lot of movies. This one kind of feels like a bit of a different animal in terms of how it's being presented. Yeah, it's certainly getting more of a marketing angle than the Rogue One re-release and Jaws and E.T. recently. My question now is... What is the interest in 3D 13 almost years later? Because essentially it looks like almost all of the screens with Avatar will be showing it in 3D. To my knowledge, there won't be very many options to see an IMAX 2D or any other format 2D. They might be scattered, but this is really going to test the 
modern day audience appetite and also give us some insight into what the studio is thinking for the sequel in December and how many perhaps 2D shows they give it. And I think that's probably the biggest reason behind this Mm re-release at this point, because it's going in 1800 theaters, a little bit less than I think we probably could have expected, considering it is Avatar and it's Disney re-releasing it. But, you know, at this point, I I would say maybe if it can get close to 10 million this weekend, that would be a big win. But I'm not sure that's a lock yet, given what we are starting to see in terms of of those 3D showtimes being predominant. It's a little bit like a test run, like cinema operators get all your tech kinks with the 3D equipment, get them all sorted now. (laughs) But we've also got a number of holdovers, including the number one movie of last weekend, which overperformed The Woman King from Sony coming in on the high end of our expectations with a $19 million debut. Sean, how do you look at that opening weekend performance? And how do you think that factors in for week two? That's a great result. And I you know, at this point, given how word of mouth seems on top of the reviews, not only do I think we'll probably see this kind of get some award season push, but I think legs on this will be strong. It will lose some of the premium formats in its second weekend. That'll dent things a little bit. This is one of those movies that I really see sticking around for weeks to come. And honestly, I, probably even into November, I, I think where it's at right now, estimated at a 19 million opening we we could easily see it approach 70 million, if not higher domestically, which mm. is a great result. Again, original IP. If you can call history original IP, not really, not really <laughs> clear on that front entirely. And we've also got a number of horror titles coming in and legging out as we go into the Halloween spooky season. We've got mm. Barbarian from 20th Century Studios. A lot of great word of mouth on that one. I haven't gotten to see it yet. And from A24 and director Ty West, Pearl, the prequel to X that came out earlier this year. X looked really good on, on the big screen, so I'm, I'm pumped to see Pearl. A24 has announced a third film in what is now a trilogy about this Mia Goth character, so clearly there's confidence in Ty West. Uh, You know, I'm excited to see Smile coming out in one or two weeks. Yeah, Smile especially looks terrifying. I've seen the trailer for that on the big screen. Sean, at this point, before Smile even comes out, what's your forecast for that movie? I'm pretty optimistic on it. I think it's a Paramount release and they've really had the Midas touch on most of their movies this year. They've they've been a major presence in, in bringing back long-windowed theatrical titles and horror is well-timed, obviously, coming up on spooky season, as you mentioned. I think the trailers are really effective and I think we're starting to see that in the marketing and, and some of the chatter online about it. So it's, it's another one of those original, probably inexpensive horror films that is well poised to generate some kind of run that will last through October, kind of in the vein of the black phone, perhaps. I think it might have that kind of potential. On the subject of of spooky season, Sean, October 14th, Halloween ends. I kind of feel like we're leading up to that in terms of the horror releases. Obviously, uh, we know now that that is going day and date, theatrical and on Peacock, same as Halloween Kills did. What's your range? Because it's a, it's a it's a it's a kind of an unusual situation. Yeah, you know the odd thing is in an, an unfortunate way, I suppose that the fact that it's going streaming day and date makes it a little bit more of an apples to apples easier comparison with Kills last year, uh, and we know that word of mouth was very divisive on Kills. So yeah, uh, even before this, I mean, I'm sorry, right. we, we have to call it a race. That movie <laughs> sucked. It was Not terrible. Good. Not good. We, we all love that franchise. That movie was absolutely awful. It can only go up from here with Halloween ends. 
Hopefully. I mean, here and here's the good thing with Halloween fran- and really a lot of horror franchises. Those diehard fans still turn out that opening day, even if the last movie was. Oh, horrible. yeah. No, including <laughs> so, myself. I say that I'm still yeah. going to see Halloween ends the first second. Yeah. It's out. Yeah. So that's and, but I think we'll see some drop off. Uh, it, it will be tough to kind of capture that goodwill that the that kills had going in because a lot of people loved the 2018 reboot. We'll see. I would say probably somewhere in the high 30s to low 40s is what it's looking at right now, which is still good. Mm. That's that, you know, it's not knocking it. Is it a step down from the last two movies? Of course. But uh, I think theaters will be more than happy with that, given where the franchise is at right now. And you have that movie topping out around 84 million. That's black phone territory. You mentioned Smile might do around there. Is that what we're looking at on the high end of uh, domestic totals for these horror movies, the spooky season, high 80s, mid 80s? On the high end, yeah, I think uh, with Smile, we we kind of need to see what word of mouth is on that. With Halloween Ends, I think it's pretty safe to expect something in that 70 to maybe 80 range. And as we look a little bit closer up in the schedule, we were talking about Barbarian and Pearl a little bit ago. What are your expectations for those titles this upcoming weekend? Barbarian's really interesting. I think it only dropped about 40% in its second frame, which wow. is very, very good for a horror movie. Even an original horror movie, you would expect it not to be super front-loaded. But that tells me that you know people are loving this movie and they're going to go see it as we get closer to Halloween. Pearl, a little bit different. A24 and Ty West both have a little bit of a fan draw at this point, mm-hmm. considering its attachment to X. I would expect more of a sharp drop off for that. You know, really both can probably coexist to some extent, but Barbarian is really, I think, the one to keep watching in the next few weeks. And you can read our full weekend forecast from Sean Robbins over at boxofficepro.com and our long range forecast from Sean as well, coming out every Friday. Guys, let's go into the other bit of news here because we have some schedule changes, some additions, some moves coming up from a lot of major studios. Let's start with Sony. Rebecca, we got this at 6 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday. I thought that meant that Spider-Man died. But uh, actually, we got some good news. Yeah, of course. Of course, we got all the uh, if, if it comes in uh, late later on Friday, we're primed for it to be bad. But <laughs> no, we have the return of the original Karate Kid franchise. So we're getting a kind of nostalgia driven reboot that coming out June 2024. Sony did the Ghostbusters reboot most recently, right? I mean, it kind of feels like in the same territory. And it's an IP that's completely revitalized with the streaming success of uh, Cobra Kai going back to the original trilogy and sort of getting an update from all those characters. This is another example, Rebecca, of a point that you've made often on this podcast on how success on streaming can often lead to beneficial results for theatrical down the line. I'm, I'm fascinated to see where this goes to because I, a lot of people are talking about Cobra Kai these last few years. I haven't seen it uh, yet, but I've heard really good things. And it's it's one of those those series, I completely agree. It, it can benefit interest in expanding that universe uh, theatrically. Well, we also have coming up from Sony in January 2023, uh, an untitled horror haunting ghost type of film. We don't really know anything else about it except that it's ghosts, so I'm there. That's all we need. That's all we and, need. Ghosts or robots. We're going to see them. And then uh, in February of 2023, a film called Missing uh, with Storm Reed and Nia Long, the next installment in the Searching franchise. I really like the first one. I mean, it was uh, kind of a, a new take, I guess, maybe on the found footage idea where the idea is John Cho is uh, looking for his missing daughter, but all he has is 
the whole thing takes place on a screen as he kind of mm-hmm. looks through her emails and messages and, and tries to unsolve this mystery. It, it could have been gimmicky, yeah. um, but but in flat, but it actually was was a really exciting film. I thought. Yeah, it was good, and I think it's you know this is a smart smart decision by Sony because the true crime wave is just massive right now, and I think these are the kinds of movies that can really tap into that audience. And as Rebecca mentioned, that sequel to Searching is titled Missing, coming out on February 24th, 2023. We also had some schedule shifts here, guys. 65. I don't know what that movie's about. It's, it's sci-fi. I believe it's the Adam Driver sci-fi. It, it, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited for any, you know, crazy interstellar shenanigans. There's been like no... In really information or a trailer about, about about it yet, so I don't know. Why in the world did they title this thing 65? How does that tell me anything? I thought, so honestly, that sounds like a documentary about how many home runs Aaron Judge is going to hit this season for the <laughs> Yankees. If you told me that, I'd believe it. But uh, yeah, maybe they'll start marketing at some point because the movie was originally going to be coming out on April 28th, 2023. It's actually moving up March 10th, 2023. Also in terms of things that we have not really seen anything from at this point, Daniel, uh, we have some movements in Sony's, I guess you can call it Spider-Verse franchise uh, with Craven the Hunter moving from January of 2023 back a few months to October that same year. Uh, Madam Webb with Dakota Johnson as femme fatale, kind of noirish anti-heroine. I don't know. It's Dakota Johnson. I like her. That one also moving back about six months from October 2023, Craven's Old Spot, to uh, February 2024. And then then the domino effect trickles down with uh, another untitled Sony Marvel film that has been pushed uh, back into the summer of 2024. And a new Garfield movie, which... You yeah. can never have too much You guys are going to hate on Garfield? No, you can't hate on Garfield. No, no. But uh, <laughs> hey, that Craven the Hunter move, that's probably going to hit Q1 2023. We really needed that to reignite screens. Sean, how much of a disruption is that? Because now we've got the Shazam sequel coming in at the end of the first quarter in 2023. But with Craven the Hunter leaving that spot in mid-January... How's January shaping up? Well, you know, I guess the pros and cons here, I think it's actually a positive move for Craven. I was a little worried about it being in January. It almost felt like it was being dumped coming right after after Avatar. But now it's moved to that that date where the both both of the Venom movies have been so successful. So for that movie, I think it's it's a positive. Now, to your question about this January, eh, we'll see. This this really it probably is more to do with the fact that they have a lot of post-production to finish. But I'm sure, you know, tangentially it is related to the fact that they expect Avatar avatar to play for a while through January and dominate premium screens. So that tells me that January is going to rely a lot on holdovers, but there are still a few movies. Damien Chazelle's Babylon will go wide in January. I think Universal's Megan is still a potential horror standout on January 13th. And then a few more movies later in the month that could help pad things out. But right now it's looking like January is not going to be about major openers. It's just going to be more about the holiday movies. Moving on to other studios, one announcement that made me sad and one that made me happy. Looking at Disney, Star Wars, uh, something that's long been rumored is that uh, Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron movie was uh, going the way of the dodo. On the flip side of the equation, Warner Brothers is taking Magic Mike 3 from HBO Max to theatrical. 
I want to start the campaign right now to get that one like a 40x run, screen X. I want immersive everything. <laughs> Magic Mike XXL is it, it's it was one of my favorite movies of the year. It came out like just I genuinely really like that franchise. It's great because we finally see a major movie like this go from streaming to theatrical and not the other way around, which we've become so tired of seeing. And it's on Super Bowl weekend, which is I think brilliant. That that's a great counter programming to to the big game and it really adds into you know totally the reverse of what we are now kind of concerned about january february is looking very strong the patty jenkins news guys as rebecca mentions what a disappointment star wars has gone from one of those blue chip theatrical experiences from one of those cultural moments to something that's on TV a lot. They really lost the thread of the of the franchise, and it that hurts me. It hurts my heart. And with Rogue Squadron, if we remember that CinemaCon in 2021 with Patty Jenkins showing up in person, one of the few filmmakers to show up in person and passionately defending theatrical experiences, passionately defending films following a strict theatrical run, she shared her uh, negative experience, as she called it, the best of the worst options of releasing Wonder Woman 1984, day and date, in December of 2020. And she shared her own personal passion for this subject matter. I think she said what her father was a fighter pilot. Rogue Squadron had it happen. Maybe it still was someone else. I don't know. I mean, it's essentially World War II dogfighters in space. It, it was going to be so cool. And she was. Uh, she seemed to be very into the concept. Now it's off the schedule. I, I think we're disappointed to hear about that. And I think the fan communities are probably going to be reacting in their own way on that news. One thing that was quietly out of the release schedule that probably won't be stirring up too much of the online fan base, um. all those Wonder fans are going to have to speak up about White Bird from Lionsgate quietly getting The Helen Mirren fan community just... Just rabbit, <laughs> yep. rabbit. You, you were mentioning Harry Styles stands. <laughs> those Helen Mirren stands, don't go near them. White Bird is a movie from Lionsgate that was supposed to open up this Wonder cinematic universe. Wonder being a a drama, a family drama from a couple of years back that really overperformed the box office. The amount of time that Lionsgate dedicated to this title at CinemaCon, it was substantial. And at Cine Europe this summer, they did the same thing, getting European exhibitors excited about this title hitting theaters. Sean, what's going on here? Because this we have to look at being a big surprise. Yeah, I, I look at this in a, a few different ways. I kind of wonder, number one, was this movie going to be geared less toward families than the, the previous movie ended up being? And if that's the case, it was really going to rely on the adult female crowd. And when you look at that, it was going to open right after Amsterdam and right before Ticket to Paradise in October. Maybe Lionsgate was a little concerned about that. It's possible. And I do wonder, uh, you know, at this point, maybe hopefully it still gets a theatrical release. They haven't said either way. It's just off the calendar. Rebecca, Sean, thank you so much for your insights here in the new segment of the Box Office Podcast. Coming up next, we've got Michael Jacinto, the sales director of Proctor Companies in our vendor interview segment, talking about Proctor's presence in the dine-in cinema market and some of the trends he's looking as it leads us into our panel conversation presented by Spotlight Cinema Networks on the state of dine-in cinemas. 
Cinema operators, are you looking to improve your per capita spend? Proctor Companies has been the leading supplier of food and beverage systems, concession stands, and box offices for the cinema industry for over 50 years. Proctor specializes in design build services, custom millwork, kitchen and bar equipment, furniture, parts, and supplies, and provides the best customer service in the business. Whether it's a new theater or a renovation, give the experts at Proctor Companies a call to discuss how they can make your next project a revenue generating success. Before we started recording, uh, Michael and I were talking about just moving away from that conception that people have about cinemas, about cookie cutter places, things that look exactly the same. Proctor Companies is one of those companies that makes sure that that design of the concession area of that F&B strategy is unique and innovative. Could you go over some of those innovations that you guys have brought to the table over the last number of years? Absolutely. My favorite one is the new buzzword coming around that is the marketplace concept. Now, the marketplace concept is not unfamiliar to anybody. You go around, you pick up your items, you walk it to the register, they ring you up, you pay for it. Uh, and that's a fantastic thing. It helps reduce your labor costs. So that's been a very big thing for us. Uh, there's also the the buffet style where, you know, you go more in a line. Those things work out very well. Well, and the thing is, is they're doing this in other businesses already. Mm-hmm. We've designed at least a half a dozen concession stands this year alone using that marketplace style. The next innovation to that becomes the self-checkout. And we're looking for that customer to give us the opportunity to design that concession stand for us to take us into 2023. We're seeing a future in the salmon industry where it's the front of house that ends up being a more inviting space for patrons to come in and feel comfortable. You mentioned other industries. You see this down to coffee shops and restaurants. It's just that design of physical spaces that make it exciting to leave the home. Could you speak about how uh, Proctor has responded to these trends in design? One of the things that we found is a fantastic moneymaker for our theater owners is alcohol. This is not a well-kept secret. Everybody is in on this one. It's a wonderful thing. So you put a bar in and you make it well lit and you make it very inviting. And now people want to come in. They want to sit down. They want to have a drink. They may order an appetizer before they head into that movie. Everybody is most likely going to the theater with a friend or they're waiting for a friend. And now you've given them a space to wait. And in giving them a space to wait, you've given them a place to spend money with you. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I mention through the various panels at various shows that I've done is it's important for Proctor as a partner to theater owners to provide a space for you that allows you to put out a product that maybe necessarily the studio doesn't get a cut of. The studio is gonna get that movie ticket and we certainly understand that, but what can we do for the theater owner to create more profit in your building and more profit in your space? The bar is the number one way to do that. Now, when we talk about dining, we also have to mention that dining isn't a one size fits all solution. Uh, There are different approaches to the dine-in concept. And uh, you guys have specialized in working your way around those differences. Could you go into those 
distinctions in dine-in models that you've seen on the field? We've put in three or four different types of models. The first one being that counter order and the customer pickup. Uh, quite frankly, this is my least favorite, but this is your most labor-friendly option. And that's just where the customer comes directly up to that counter. They order their food. You call out a name or a number when it's ready, and they come back and pick it up. Another one that that I enjoy is what they call the counter order. And, and this has evolved just a little bit from not just counter order, but kiosk order so that you don't have to man the station. So that counter or kiosk order and then that seat delivery. And that's allowing that customer to go, okay, I'm going to walk in the door. When I buy my ticket, I can buy my food. And then when I land to my seat, within minutes, my food is there. The movie comes up and I'm having a wonderful, very easy, convenient time. Another one that I think is a little bit fun because it allows for the guest interaction, guest employee interaction is that the customer orders at the seat and you bring that to them. But you only do that at the start of the theater or you know, just before the previews come on, the lights in the auditorium are up. It makes that work a little bit easier. So that's that's one that I think is in place now. And I see people starting to move away a little bit with that because they can actually go to the next one, which allows them to do ongoing delivery throughout the movie. Your employees are dressed in all that black. They're bending over. They're young kids. Their backs are fine. They're doing great. They're sliding in and out of this. Your employees know, okay, we're about 45 minutes or a half hour before the end of the movie. It's time to drop the check. By the time the lights come up for the movie, Especially now with those end credit scenes, you get an extra 15, 20 minutes through those Marvel movies that they can drop the check by the time the lights come up, customers paid, ready to go. Now, all of these concepts make sense depending on where you are geographically, the sort of space you have. How does the theater owner choose between these different dine-in concepts and how do you guys assist them in that process through the design? Space is a huge, a huge key factor in that. Do we have room to to do these things in a full dine-in? Is there a labor market available to you? Because currently right now, nobody has a labor market available to them. Mm -hmm. We just don't know how short-term or how long-term that issue is going to be. So we want to look at what does the community support also? Does the community Mm -hmm. support, can they work a kiosk? Can the bulk of your customers work at kiosk? And then do you have people that can run food to a seat? So there are many different things and and a lot of different questions that I like to ask when I'm talking to that theater owner to get an idea of what the community will support, what their building and their space will support, and really what's going to fit their budget also. And those are the key things that help us to point them in the right direction. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And that is Michael Jacinto, the Director of Sales at Proctor Companies. You can find more information about Proctor Companies over at proctorco.com. And thanks again to Michael Jacinto from Proctor Companies for those insights as they lead us into this panel conversation that we hosted on boxofficepro.com on the state of the dine-in industry, brought to you by our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks. To kick things off, we brought on Jerry Rackfeld, the CEO of Spotlight Cinema Networks, to start the conversation on just how the dine-in sector is recovering and emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. To start off here, uh, we know that you're very 
very involved in the spotlight business here, making sure that luxury dining circuits, the art houses in the country uh, are prepared. They have different revenue streams to, to help them go through lulls in the <clears throat> release schedule, as we've seen, I think, for the last couple of years. From a very general level, what are some of the, I guess, micro overview, macro overviews of the diamond space uh, that you can share with our, with our audiences today? Well, I think it, it's fair to say that the diamond cinema space is the most vibrant part of the industry. For us, several, I don't know, four or five years ago, we certainly saw the growth of diamond cinemas and the importance of, of working with diamond cinemas. Creating an engaging experience for audiences really is a key to the continued success of the movie going experience and the audience and what the panelists have done with their companies. And I'm sure many people joining today have done a wonderful job over the years to create that experience. And it's extremely important. Advertisers as well find that creating an environment that is more open to an advertising that focuses on the upscale adult audience is a value to them as well. So we work with them and, and hopefully bring the, both of these great organizations with great advertising together. So let's start here uh, with our panel conversation. The last thing I want to mention is the pandemic. So I'm, get, I'm going to get that question out of the way, first and foremost, quickly. Not in terms of getting audiences back, but in terms of supply chain. Running a dine-in cinema circuit, running a dine-in cinema chain is a lot harder when you've got uh, supply chain issues. Brian, how have you tackled that challenge across all your locations nationwide over at Lockdown and Cinemas? Yeah, I mean, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because we were starting from zero in the middle of COVID, putting together the locations and standing up the uh, 10 locations. I really think that this conscious capitalism philosophy of really worrying about each stakeholder and building these partnerships over decades has really played to our advantage because we really haven't experienced the same level of supply chain that I'm hearing a lot of other uh, companies deal with. So uh, we've been just very blessed in that way. Same with staffing, same with the um, things like chairs, food products, the relationships have really uh, come through really strong. Amy, welcome to the webinar. You're with a vendor provider, Venue Valet, servicing call buttons, service buttons to dine-in cinemas. Uh, all over the country, and you also help organize the Dine-In Cinema Summit, which is a great event that's happening in Dallas on February 7th. Uh, you guys can go check out their website right now, find more information about that. Amy, you speak with Dine-In exhibitors all the time. It's your business, 365 days a year, you're thinking Dine-In Cinemas. What are the major trends and uh, topics that you're hearing from the Dine-In sector today? The trends that we're seeing right now with our customers is that the first one is that they're starting to hire restaurant people, people that come from the restaurant industry to make the experience more, the food experience much more better, you know, and that's really what I see them doing. The second thing that I see is, and I don't know if Chance talked about this, but I, for example, Flick's brew house right now is using robots to assist with their staffing issues that they're having. And we're seeing other customers that do that. No? Like like the Terminator robots? robots. Like the robots from Rocky IV robots? Chance, <laughs> wait a minute. I, I have to interrupt you for a second. Listen. We've got robots here? No, you, you got to come on stage and explain this. They're not as dangerous yeah. as the Terminator. Or you got to talk Ford. about it. Um, but they certainly are effective. And I think it's it's important to understand that, you know, I, I think, you know, we were talking about challenges and, and Brian mentioned staffing. And I think, I think we've all done a better job than maybe we thought we were going to in the beginning. But one of the things we realized very quickly is that 
you know, there's been a huge shift over the last few years about what people, you know, look for in the value of a job. And so what we really tried to identify early in the year were some opportunities to maybe reduce a little bit of stress, reduce a little bit of need, and ultimately make the, the experience for our team member, you know, a little bit smoother. So yeah, we do have some robots. You may have seen them in other restaurants or hotels. They're, they're being used in room service. They're very harmless. They're, they're kind of cute. But what they do is you, you fill them up with food or, and beverage and they, uh, they run it to the auditorium for you. So I think any of us who operate in dine-in cinema know that our, our team members will have you know, step contests. How many steps did you take today? You know, and sometimes we're looking at 15 or 20,000 and these robots are now bringing that down a little bit. We're letting them you know, still get their exercise, them being the team member. But the robots are assisting by getting the food hotter, faster from the kitchen to the auditorium so that our team can be more guest facing. And as Amy pointed out, really try to elevate the experience. And, you know, everyone gets a laugh and, and has, has some fun seeing a robot roll down the hall. Um, it's pretty cool. So aside from its utility, it's a pretty cool little initiative that we've been able to, to get going this year. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. The Dine-In Cinema Summit is also actively involved in bringing this community together, bringing competitors together to find a way to make this more appealing to consumers everywhere. Can you tell me a little bit about that theme of togetherness of best practices and how that's going to influence your event in February in Dallas, Texas? Our summit is a little bit different. We don't call it a conference because we truly believe it's an educational summit. And our goal is to have the decision makers there so that the conversations that happen, you feel very comfortable with them. You know that there's not just a you know, significant amount of random people that may or may not be employed you know, after in six months or what have you. But we truly sit down and go deep into topics. We, we talk about relations from exhibitor to exhibitor and we have the vendor to vendor. I mean, it, it shocked me that some vendors didn't really speak to each other. And then at the end of the first summit, they were, you know, they became best friends because we bust you around to different movie theaters the movie theaters, Flicks and Movie House and Eatery, now Sinopolis, Alamo, Evo, just to name a few, have been such staunch supporters of this where we they allow us to go in. They give us tours of their facility. They tell us how, what they show us what their kitchen looks like. They talk about mistakes that are made. We don't want to have a, you know, a negative connotation with it, but I truly believe that people will learn when they hear other people's mistakes. And it's interesting you bring that up. That niche that, that we think of dining now, I, we just ran on the magazine a couple of months ago, a report from Omdia, the data research firm covering the industry, that 8% of screens in North America are now dining screens. Dining defined as expanded F&B beyond your regular staple concessions. So you're seeing this grow. You're seeing a lot of that evolution. Part of that evolution are investments to the dining experience, to the ordering experience. Uh, we just spoke about robots. I didn't expect to do that today, but that's not the only uh, innovation happening in this industry. There are, as you well know, Amy, service call buttons that you have, you have mobile ordering. Uh, let's start with Annalise when we talk about some of the innovations that dining cinemas are investing in right now. Annalise, from the Cinepolis side, what are the improvements that your chain is currently doing to ensure the dining continues to be a luxury and cutting edge experience. I think we're also, you know, in the same boat as everyone else with the robots, which for me, I'm like looking at it from a marketing standpoint of how I can turn the robots into minions and advertise on them and sell them because anything we can sell, we love. We recently, worldwide, globally, Synopolis is going to be converting over to 100% laser projection, which we're super excited about. Changes are already underway. So making sure that the experience a theatrical is always super important. And we want to make sure that 
people get the best projection and sound. From a kitchen standpoint, we're building bigger kitchens. We have one location in the pipeline in Hollywood Park near the Rams and Chargers Stadium. So that's going to have a state-of-the-art kitchen. Upgrading our seats, making sure that when the guests come in, especially for people that haven't been to the cinema in a really long time, making sure that they know that we have that they have a great facility. Like you mentioned earlier, we don't want people who haven't been to the theater to feel sticky floors. And we're doing everything we can to get seats and things upgraded. And then from food and beverage perspective, we are updating our menu several times a year. We have LTOs six times a year, which, you know, makes us, we want guests to feel like it is a true restaurant and a chef-driven experience. Yeah, it's such an important part of making sure that you're still up to the trends. You mentioned uh, laser projection. You mentioned seating. Ryan, from your perspective, you've been working in dining cinemas for many years now. You always have to stay ahead of the curve. How is Look Cinemas staying ahead of that curve right now? A lot of the focus is really on the uh, content to make sure that we have the flexibility in every auditorium to literally play any kind of content anytime with pure flexibility and the touch of an iPad. Currently, throughout the entire chain, you can go to any auditorium and do anything from a Zoom relationship to uh, streaming to play your film or go on a microphone. So this idea of how do you transition from saying film to content so that we can deal with some of these lulls that have been so disruptive to dine in in particular with our staffing levels. Let's talk about menu items, uh, because I just did a feature story. Uh, actually, it's right there with our colleagues at Alamo Draft House. It was their 25th anniversary. And I was talking to them about their national expansion. And I was talking to Trish Eichelberger, their uh, head of F&B, about how Alamo changes its menu nationally. Something that she mentioned that I found really interesting is that the pizza sauce that they use in Texas was getting complaints in Yonkers, New York, for being too spicy. That's something that the chain never had to think about when they were a regional chain. And now that they're going national, they have to look at what's available from the menus. They have to look at what's seasonal and adapt to changing tastes. I wanted to, to chat about that. Let's start with Chance on how uh, Flix Brewhouse is tackling these different menus, these regional menus, especially because you guys do have Texas locations, but you're also looking at strategic expansions and new locations in parts of the country where dining isn't the saturated. Very, very true. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's definitely a challenge. And we've got kind of two different lenses that we view it through. We've obviously got the food side. And, and then for us, there's the beer side, which I'll talk about shortly as well. But on the food side, I think you do have to kind of learn how to, you know, for example, we, use, we have a green chili queso. Do you kind of up the spice a little bit more in New Mexico, the home, the birthplace of green chili, also where I was born. So I like it spicy. I like it fiery. Um, I'm a Texas guy now. So, you know, for, for people like me, we really do like that spice. But when we get to Wisconsin or Iowa, where we have a couple of cinemas, people are not as keen to uh, have that burn. And it's a, it's funny. It's always interesting to hear that and go, you're kidding, right? I mean, it's pretty tame. But so I think it's a great point. I think you do have to kind of have the flexibility in your operation to say, maybe we're still going to serve that same green chili queso, but we're going to back down the amount of spice in this market or that market. And you also have to really empower your team to make those good decisions. I think one of the things that is important as you grow is to have really good standards and make sure that the recipes are excellent and that the execution is excellent and you bring your team together to train and learn and develop on those things, but also empower them to make good decisions for their market, for their team. So I think it's always a delicate balance. You're never going to find the perfect one. It's a lot of trial and error and a, and a willingness to, to adapt and change as we pointed out. And then for us on the beer side, I think that's where we get to have a lot more fun with it where we have a brewer in every unit. So 
while we do have some mandated national beers that we do, we have our core four beers that are award-winning, kind of, you know, really call out our brewers for, they've won, I think, over 20 medals this year in different beer competitions. We're very, very proud of them and proud of our beer. But then in addition to those core beers that we do and those national seasonals that we do, we allow them the flexibility and creativity to make beers that work best in their market. You know, you've got different levels of beer adventure or people that are willing, the level of intrigue and new styles is going to be different in Dallas than it is in Des Moines. And it's going to be different in San Antonio than it is in El Paso. So I think you've got to really find ways within your brand to find your own version of that flexibility and that creativity that attaches you to the local market. Because at the end of the day, while Flix certainly has aspirations to be everywhere, we're going to control the world. We want to make sure that we, we keep intact that really local communal feel. Brian, on your end of the thing, you've always said that when you entered the dining space, the standard was warm beer and cold chicken fingers. And it was your mission that the impact you'd have in exhibition was making sure that the menu side of the dining experience would have a huge improvement. Can you talk about how those regional changes in tastes sort of mold from place to place as you tackle things nationally? Yeah, I, I think the consistency issue that everyone's talking about is pretty important, but the corporate philosophy is more of an 80-20. So 80% of the menu is the core that has set recipes that are very defined. And then we like to give the flexibility to the local teams. And it sounds absolutely crazy. But one of the most important things to give a great hospitality experience is have the team engaged. And the way that they get engaged is they come up with the menu item. And we try to give the flexibility, good or bad, from my personal perspective. If the guests like it, we give them a shot to really try and really explore. And we've had some of our biggest successes there. But more importantly, it gets the team engaged. And it's fun seeing some of the staff members, parents, relatives, guests come in, you know, and we'll put the uh, team member on screen where they can talk about their menu item. There's all these little things that make us feel very neighborhood and local, which is really important as we get larger on a national. So there's that mix of not saying, hey, we're one way or the other. It's in those shades of gray that I think you really create a neighborhood uh, connection and uh, that real hospitality feeling. And uh, talking about uh, how you get some of these alcohol specials, some of your food specials, and leverage them through the film content coming in through social media, what's that alchemy there? What are the ingredient ingredients, sorry for the food pun, but what are the ingredients to make sure those, uh, those special themed menu items, whether it's alcohol or food, work in tandem with the film's promotion? Well, first and foremost, we have an amazing head of beverage that is, you know, she's talking to different beverage agencies about what's on trend. Every so often, we do get partnerships with the studios that bring things in, but we're talking about the drinks for next year now already, looking at the movie schedule, kind of going back and forth about what's going to come out and make sure that we've got the different products available um, she's done some great, really fun drinks this year. Like we had adult Capri Suns, all sorts of different things. And one of the big successes for us this year was kids lemonades, actually, that were not alcohol specific, but just something fun that we could offer children that was easy to make. And those things do really well on social media. And it's a big part of just our general content strategy. We obviously do promote the movies. But we know that our customers can go to lots of different theaters. And so we want to sway them to ours with unique products. Well, Brian, uh, on your end of the conversation, of course, we're talking about coming in with a dining strategy, coming in with menu items that make sense regionally. 
How do you tie that into a movie event? How, how does that work for the look brand? I think the one thing I just want to caution really quick, because we get so excited about the food and beverage. Obviously, we're dining in theater operators, and we love that. One of the things I really learned for the good of the whole is that the content on screen is the main feature. And when I first started off, we literally had five touch points during the film. And it was hard to really understand why, you know, the uh, service staff wasn't the uh, sir of the show. And as we've learned over time, I just wanted to, as we're getting really excited about the food and beverage, which I love, to make sure that the movie really is the main thing. And that's part of the huge success of Dine-In to be non-distracting as you're uh, doing this service and making those suggestions. And one of the difficulties why a lot of dine-in cinemas have trouble is there's a small window to be able to execute in to get this information across and drive that excitement. So I think that gets me kind of to the answer of really having a connection with our guests. And what's really interesting is we can see exactly what each guest eats and drinks and when we do the analytics, if we have a guest that comes in and just gets soft drink and popcorn, their frequency at our establishment is a couple times a year. But if they actually experience and they have an alcoholic beverage or have an entree and different things, we get into the uh, 10 plus times a year. So there's a huge multiplier effect in our data when we actually do the experience properly. And dine-in theaters are really created for that purpose. So how can we actually communicate to the guest and really focus on the guest who wants that dine-in experience? Chance, from your side, if you could change something about the dine-in industry after being in this business also over a decade, what would be the one thing you would change? I think we're, we're, we're getting really close to finding that magic balance between you know the restaurant experience and the movie experience in terms of being able to facilitate the guest experience without interrupting it as much. I think the holy grail for me personally, for in you know the, the single answer is the ability to have an open check inside of our POS that you as a guest can interact with, and I as a consumer can interact with, and then you can pay and go without you know the need for me to drop that check and interrupt you that one more time. Again, there's some there's some companies out there that are working really hard to get there. I would love to call one of them out if it was already done and say that's the one and we should all use it, but it's just not quite there. And Annalise, from your perspective looking at how difficult the dining sector is to pull off and make sure that that experience is just top of line every time, what would be the one big change you would do in the industry? I mean, if money were no object, I would invent my own point of sale and I would make it amazing. And I would connect to these great loyalty programs like Punch. And there's so many great options out there that unfortunately we're not able to utilize. To Brian's point, I mean, making everything more personalized. You know, we do have some great partners on the loyalty side, but I do think that there's a long way to go, especially from a restaurant perspective. Some restaurants, you know, rewards programs like Chipotle, they're light years ahead of our industry. And I would love, you know, if money were no object, I it would be great if we could get to that point because I think there's so much opportunity with predictive selling and um, just making the ease of transactions better, as Chance mentioned too, just having that open check so that we could, um, you know, just make things easier on the guest because they see it at other companies and they, they don't understand that we have, you know, hindrances just being in the industry that we're in. It doesn't matter to a customer. They think if Chipotle can do it, why can't you do it? And we all need to push the vendors to make those changes. If we're seeing it at other chains and other businesses, you know, bringing those things to them and, and pushing them to make those improvements. 
And that does it for this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to our panelists, Annalise Holyoke, Jerry Rackfeld, Michael Jacinto, Amy Mader, Chance Robertson, and Brian Schultz for their participation. And also a big thank you to our co-hosts, Sean Robbins and Rebecca Polly for their insights earlier on this episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate us so you can listen to our next podcast episode coming up next week. On behalf of the Box Office Company, Record Edit Podcast, and Box Office Pro, who produce this show, thank you again for listening. 